Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I'm Peter King. And welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, from the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis, a triple header. I've got a very interesting and enlightening interview with Matt Patricia, the head coach of the Detroit Lions, who went from perhaps being a nuclear engineer or rocket scientist to coaching the venerable Detroit Lions. Also this week, a conversation with Wyoming quarterback Josh Allen, who really lit it up at the Scouting Combine, and also some thoughts from veteran Cleveland Plain Dealer, Browns beat writer, Mary Kay Cabot, on just what it's like to cover a team that quite often appears to be hopeless. But first, I want to give you a few thoughts on what I see happening at this time of year. You know, we exit the scouting combine every year. We're 336 uh, prospects go to Indianapolis and they are basically dissected by coaches, general managers, scouts throughout the National Football League. And at the end of it, invariably, we always hear, well, boy, Shaquem Griffin, he rose up the charts this week. Uh, or Orlando Brown, boy, he's going to kill his draft status. And, and, and I just want to tell you that most often, almost all the time, Teams do not make massive changes in what they do, you know, between the time uh, that the combine ends and the time that the draft begins, which is in about seven weeks. And I say that because I notice every year coming out of the combine, there's all kinds of stories about, well, here's the fastest riser, here are the people, here fastest risers, here's who really plummeted and their draft stock got killed uh, at the scouting combine. And, and I just have to tell you, I just don't think it's true. Connor Orr wrote a really enlightening story, I think, this week at the MMQB, basically saying that most teams set much of their draft board, and it doesn't change very much from the time they have their pre-combine meetings in January or February. Uh, it changes some, but it doesn't change a lot between that time and the time that, uh, you know, the draft happens in late April. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, the Miami Dolphins a few years ago, when Bill Parcells, more than a few years ago, but Bill Parcells was running their front office, and they got all excited because of the Wildcat quarterback craze. They got all excited by this quarterback from West Virginia named Pat White. And Pat White was not thought of as a franchise quarterback or anything, but you know the Dolphins thought, hey, he could play a role here. He could do a lot of fun things for us and maybe play some wildcat quarterback. The Dolphins picked him in the middle of the second round, and everybody said, wow, that's a bold pick. And Pat White ended up having a nothing NFL career. And Parcells, I think, the next year was so, I don't want to say haunted, but he was so ticked off, really, by the fact that they got swayed by this this wildcat quarterback craze that he said, hey, listen, from now on, you know, as long as I'm here, we're setting our draft board before the combine, and we're not going to get swayed by what we see at the combine or or by some, what is the you know uh, the, the the latest flavor of ice cream that everybody gets excited about. So I I, I think I would just I only tell you this just to be very careful at this time of year with what you hear. And believe me, a team's draft board on February 1st is not going to look very much different than it looks on April 20th. And now my conversation with Detroit Lions coach Matt Patricia. 
back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm here at the NFL Scouting Combine with Matt Patricia, the new head coach of the Detroit Lions. Matt, uh, so we're sitting here in the Indianapolis Convention Center. You're in the middle of uh, your sort of first right, real big duties as, as a head coach in the NFL. What does it sound to you when I say Matt Patricia, head coach of the Detroit Lions? That's definitely, uh, it, it's kind of something that's, um, it's kind of surreal. You know, when I, when I take a moment to kind of pull myself outside of myself and, and look at it, it's, uh, it's pretty unbelievable. Uh, unfortunately, though, right now I'm just trying to, you know, keep my head down and keep up because it's really been just, it's been kind of crazy since, things, uh, since everything went down and uh, a lot's going on, moving really fast. So um, I'm really blessed to be in this situation, obviously very fortunate, lucky, and kind of, you know, it's kind of actually surreal at some points. You know, Bob Quinn and I are walking around the building sometimes and we're talking about different things we need to do or adjustments or changes. And, you know, I'm still kind of looking around going, well, can we, is, is that OK? Can we do that or, or not? And he's like, you're the head coach. We can do whatever you need to do. I was like, all right, great. Let's do that. Then let's go. So yeah. it takes a little while, but it's it's great. So, Matt, you uh, the one very noticeable thing about you is that I. Every time anybody sees you, you have the pencil behind your right ear. And I wonder, you've told this story a few times, but I want people to know. We're sitting here, and you, uh, you've you got your lion's cap on, and you've got a probably a Ticonderoga number 2 yep. pencil uh, ready to use, I think sharpened behind your right ear. How did that happen? How did it start? Uh so, you know, for me, the pencil thing is kind of funny. In, in college, that's all we used. We used mechanical pencils. Um, we did a lot of, you know, drawings and, you know, uh, um, formulas and writing, and we just never used pens. So I had a great set of mechanical pencils I used to use all the time, did it through engineering. Uh, when I got into coaching, I would say when I got to New England, the way that we broke film was it's a lot of hand drawings, a lot of pencil drawings, and, you know, with the information being broken down. So it's like, oh, it's great. I have, I have all my mechanical pencils. I've got my, you know, my all my different like um, you know uh, tools my rulers all this stuff I'm like this will be perfect and just you know long story short found out that the mechanical pencils just they didn't really have the right uh, right weight to them it just didn't really work the drawings weren't good enough and it was just were you breaking good, um, were well, you breaking you know, the a lid little, there's a little bit of give to the mechanical pencils so you know as you press down the lines would you know and you're trying to draw fine lines here where guys are moving 22 guys on the field so you get one bad line in there and you know I got to erase everything and start over and the best thing was just a good old, you know, wooden number two pencil. So I've really had it tucked behind my ear since then. Just and I most of the time forget it's there, and I'm just walking around. When you wake up there. in the morning, you quite literally just wake up, and it's like you put on a watch or you put on you remember your phone. You put that behind your ear. Yeah, for the most part, I you know throw my hat on and and put the pencil behind my ear and, and go. Wow. <laughs> So how many years has that been happening? Uh, well, it was 14. We're rolling on 14, moving into 15 right now. What would it feel like if you didn't have the pencil behind your ear? Good question. Uh, I probably at this point wouldn't know the difference if it was there or not. I think the one unique factor I get is that uh, towards the end of the year when my beard gets you know to its full length, I actually stick the pencil in my beard and just sometimes <laughs> I, I can keep it right in there. So you know when I lose it, so I'm you know checking is it in my beard, is it in my ear, where is it? So for people who would see you on the sidelines and then saw you in your press conference with the Lions, you were incredibly relatively speaking clean shaven so do you do that at the end of every year you you cut yeah. a lot of your beard off yeah it's this is the normal routine for me so uh you know the beard i during the season i let it go and and if we're playing well then and it gets you know nice and big and wild and uh if we have a really good year then uh, i like to keep it for a little bit and, and you know savor it and just kind of you know remember the year so last year was you know i had i probably had it for you know another month or so after the season uh i was pretty quick to shave it this year i wasn't real <laughs> happy so try to get it you know taken down and start over as soon as possible so my, my wife likes it a little bit better uh, uh, shorter than just you know when I have uh, probably five inches of hair sticking out the side of my face so yeah so I'm going to ask you I got three history questions the first is I think when people know your story they're always sort of surprised that you came to football even though you could well have been and I don't this is not a cliche you could well have been a rocket scientist you could well have done something in that vein of life 
So how would you say your college experience at RPI, how would you say your college experience sort of led you to football? Sure. Um, you know, and I, I would say even probably before college, you know, I've always loved football. I just, uh, being a little kid and playing the Where'd game you grow in the up? backyard. So I grew up in central New York, right in between Syracuse and Utica, a uh, small city called Cheryl, New York, right outside of Oneida, New York. And uh, we would play, my, my buddy Tommy McCoolif and I, we would play football every day in the backyard and we would, you know, run around and um, we just were obsessed with the game. So we would play electric football, we'd get all the pieces, you know, <laughs> nobody even knows what electric football is oh, anymore. Oh, I know what electric you know, football yeah. is. So we would set up all the pieces and we'd have play diagrammed and um, we would just, you know, we would do it all the time. We actually, um, at one point growing up, uh, we had a really long hallway in my house and um, we, we used to call it Marcus Allen. So Tom would go all the way down at the other end of the hall. You know, he was the running back. I was the lineman, and I would have to get down on my knees, and he would just run full speed, and the goal was he would try to jump over the top and score, and that was it. That was the game. Like, can he run through me, and the hallway is maybe three feet wide, and he's just trying to run through me, and I'm trying to tackle him before, you know, and then, you know. Ever any teeth lost? I mean, there that? was some definitely damage going on. You know, I know when my dad would come upstairs and start yelling, we'd have to scramble to hide before uh, – we got in a lot of trouble, but uh, just loved the game. I'd watch Monday Night Football with my dad growing up all the time, and um, he was great because, you know, obviously I had school, so um, my mom would be like, you can watch till halftime, and then you got to go to bed. And so uh, and we'd do this all the time. My, my mom would come downstairs at halftime. My dad would be like, hey, close your eyes, pretend you're sleeping. I got you. Don't worry about it. You know, and I'd lay down and close my eyes and – you know, my mom would come down. She's like, he's got to go to bed. And my, dad, he's, my dad's like, he's sleeping. I'll carry him up when the game's over. You know, my mom would go back upstairs and, you know, wake up, watch the rest of the game with my dad. So, <laughs> uh, so it was great. You know, Did you ever confess that to your uh, mother? I think I've told her the story once. If not, she's going to hear it again, and I'll probably get yelled <laughs> at or a phone call here. So, uh, but we, you know, I just loved the game of football and, you know, was uh, lucky enough to be able to go, obviously, a small level, but play, you know, Division three football at RPI. Um, you know, originally my, my love – kind of besides football was planes i wanted to be a, a pilot i wanted to be a military pilot and you know and i'm a child of the 80s so top gun maverick like let's go you know throw me in a f-14 tomcat and i was i thought i'd be good to go and um as i got older in my career in in high school um you know just a couple of lower level schools started recruiting me and, and just really still wanted to play so went to rbi uh, extremely difficult academics obviously uh in you know, the hard work, uh, the ethic, the kind of all that stuff that I had to do really kicked in there to be able to balance football, school, you know, everything else with college. And uh, but I just the guys that we played with in college and uh, the teams that we had, you know, that bond that you have when you're a young guy, you know, 18 to 21 years old. Um, most of those guys I'm still extremely close with uh, even today. So. I just, when I left school, I, I finished my four years, my aeronautical degree, and then started my MBA, and uh, I GA'd that one year. And I, I distinctly remember just the... You're a graduate assistant yeah, at, at, you know, start, at RPI. Yep, at RPI. I was kind of yeah. that, that first semester of my fifth year. And um, I remember that transition, because when you first stop playing, you know, I really don't care what level it's at. When you stop playing, you know, you look at the game and you're like, I could still do that. Or, you know, I could, you know, but it just, the game ends, you know, it just ends. But I remember making that transition and, and having a guy that was a younger guy that um, I was coaching and I was trying to help him, you know, understand concepts and blocking schemes. And I remember he, you know, he, he executed it perfectly. We scored, um, you know, won the game and, and watching his joy and, and the way that he felt and the pride that he had, it just, it, it flipped right there. I was wow. like, I never wanted to play. I never dreamt about playing what again. What position were you coaching? I was coaching, we... I was the assistant line coach. And, okay. Uh, so Jimmy Scherzer, he was a right guard. I remember the whole deal. It was an ace block and he was, you know, going backside to the linebacker and it was on the one yard line and goal line and we had to score. Makes the block, we score, we win, and uh, I just right then and there knew I was like, wow, this is this is great. And my dad was actually a, a wrestling coach, like you know, he was a wrestler in high school and re uh, wrestling coach. I never had him; he had stopped coaching by the time I got into high school. But he was a teacher and a coach. My mom was a teacher, and I just remember like, ah, I was this is pretty powerful. And so at the time, you know, I finished that first semester of, of grad assistantship and uh, my mom had said, hey, that, that degree that, you know, you just got, you really need to go use it because, uh, you know, you're still in school and it's time to get going. So went out, did engineering for a couple of years, but I remember the first 
fall is just something about the fall, you know, when it comes around and you, you smell the fresh cut grass, it's just a different feeling, you know, you just get that, that football comes back and I really just missed it. So started volunteering, you know, some different places, high schools and, and you, your parents must have thought yeah. you were really, really that this was the wrong thing. Well, when I did they, when I completely switched, you know, I was still doing engineering and kind of balancing the football, um, part of it. And I had an opportunity to interview for a company and was offered a job, a pretty pretty awesome job. It was in the nuclear field, and it was nuclear uh, engineering, which was pretty awesome. And uh, at the same time, I was offered the job. Uh, my old offensive coordinator from college called. He was at a different college, Amherst College at the time. He said, hey, he's like, I got a $5,000 a year defensive line job. Do you want it? And I just remember, you know, I got these two extremes, you know, this unbelievable nuclear field in engineering. And I got this for probably pretty good money. Yeah, it was definitely, (laughs) uh, you know, unfortunately, my parents who had been teaching for 35 plus years at that point, it was probably more than both of their salaries combined. So when I called my mom, I said, uh, you know, my mom's like, how'd the interview go? I was like, it went great. I got the job. She was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, congratulations. I go, I didn't take it. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I'm going to. I'm going to work three times as much. You're never going to see me, and I'm going to get $5,000. It's going to be great. And she just, you know, the silence at the other end was deafening. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle, I think, at first for them to understand. But my parents are great. They were super supportive. And So what did your parents teach? So my dad was a teacher. He taught uh, art, mechanical drawing in my high school. And my mom was a teacher also, and uh, she taught in the elementary school. So kind of bounced around a couple of grades there, first and fourth grade. But it was great. I went to work with my dad every day. So, you know, I'd get up, I'd get in the car, and uh, we'd roll into school, you know, which was great on some days and not so good on other days. If I didn't, you know, something he was still mad about, I had to deal with that in the morning. But uh but it was, you know, that was really special to me. So as I went through my I engineering. So much re- I got so much respect for teachers. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I just, and I feel for teachers, yep. especially today with the danger that they're I can't in imagine. and everything. Yeah. I, I, I mean. And then really at the time when I was going to switch careers, my goal was I was going back to school and I was um, going to finish my master's in education, math education. And I wanted to go back and teach and coach and just have a, a plan and really, you know, be like my like my parents. You know, I really was very blessed in the way that I grew up and the relationship that I have had and have with them. Um, you know, I thought that was really perfect. So my parents... Um, you know, they, they worked incredibly hard. And you know, when I think about the influence that they had on so many kids, and um, I still to this day get, you know, whenever I see people from high school or people reach out or we travel or whatever, you know, they're always, hey, how's your dad? How's your mom? You know, how's everybody doing? And, you know, that's how you just know what what an influence they had. And that was, you know, that was big for me. And same thing with college. When I went to college, you know, that influence that coaches have. And that's really one of the things that I just, that's one of the reasons why I left engineering. You know, I wanted to be able to make that sort of impact on people and, and really try to hopefully um, have those relationships because it is about relationships and it is about, you know, helping everybody try to achieve whatever it is they want to succeed at. With Matt Patricia, the coach of the Lions. So uh, let's, let's, let me, I'm going to ask you two things about the Patriots. I'm curious mostly as somebody now who basically had Bill Belichick as an influence in his life for a decade um, I wonder when you think about the lessons you take away from him, uh, what is at the top of that list? And, and there's so many, I was so, uh, blessed to be in a situation and so fortunate to, I was with coach Belichick every day, and especially when I switched from offense to defense and, uh, being the linebackers coach, you know, and, and him taking me under his wing and, and really teaching me all of that from a defensive perspective, um, it's it's really amazing and something you really probably I can't even comprehend because I was just trying to keep up you know uh, all the way through, but um, you know people ask me all the time about about coach and and what's amazing is as he is as a football coach he's he's even better as a person and he's better as a friend and he was an unbelievable mentor from that side of it too um, from the football side of it just to you know try to answer the question the best I can. Um, the thing that's unbelievable and that I just marvel at, not that I could ever do this, but the way that he sees the game and the way that he knows the game is going to change before it changes, just kind of that forethought of where the direction that it's moving, um, it's amazing. You know, and I sit there and he'll come in and he'll tell us about like, hey, I really think we should look at this or, you know, let's try to make sure we're working in this direction. And you're, you're sitting there and going, I don't, I don't really understand. Like, why would we do that? That's not really. And then two weeks later, it's exactly what he said. And you're like, 
okay, I really have no idea how he knew that. You know, just but that that intuition that he has, it was amazing. Um, and I would say the best thing that I can try to do, because I'm, I'm not Coach Belichick, I'm who I am, but one of the things that I learned is just the way that he coached the team. You know, he just, his mastery of the entire game of football, you know, not only, you know, the football X's and O's, the personnel side of it and all of that, but just the way that he coached the team is amazing. I've always thought with him that it has to have been incredibly influential that he, his mom spoke seven languages. His mom was a voracious reader of everything. She read the New Yorker cover to cover every, every week, you know, and his dad is the first great scout in foot, maybe in football history. I mean, Paul Brown wrote the foreword to his book. And so if you're going to be a great football coach, what better to grow up in a house where you've got a mom who's incredibly inquisitive and who's well-read and who stresses education every day of your life. And then you've got a dad who's an assistant football coach and one of the best scouts ever in the NFL. How could you have a better incubator to become a great football yeah. coach. I you mean, know? it's amazing. And you know, what's, what's unbelievable is everybody, you know, obviously wants to talk to coach Belichick about football and, you know, things of that nature. But uh, when you get them off of that topic and you start talking history and you start talking about, you know, and I love the history of the game too. So anytime I could get him into those conversations or history in general and, you know, the military, um, his, you know, obviously so intelligent, but those conversations are the ones that I just love, you know, I dive into and you're trying to find out. And that's where I think even with the game of football, that's where a lot of the legacy is passed down, you know? Right. um, So those are the ones I enjoyed the most. You know what I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to send you this. You, you get a big kick out of it. Okay. So my first year ever covering football was 1984. I covered the Cincinnati Bengals. It was Sam White's first year coaching the team. And so, so that would have been the Super Bowl year, right, against the 49ers? No, that no. was 82. Okay. It was 82. Well, that so, was the first one, right? And then yeah, exactly. They played him again. And then they played him again in 88, maybe. Okay. They, yeah, they, 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 that was the John Candy Montana so, year. Right, yeah. exactly. 84 would have been the 49ers and... 84 was... Uh, 84 was the 49ers and Dolphins. Dolphins, right. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was Dan Marino's Yeah, where everybody said, uh, don't Bears. worry, Marino, you're yeah. going to get back here a bunch, and <laughs> right, he never got right. back. That's you right. Know? Yep, that's right. Okay, uh, so yes, yeah, sorry. So, but what was so interesting is I, I, I covered the team that year, and those were in the old days of training camp, okay, where they're in Wilmington, Ohio, and in the middle of nowhere in Ohio, and uh, they're in a dorm at Wilmington College. I'm living on the ground floor of the dorm. Mike Brown is across the hall. Uh, Sam White is four doors down. Anyway, it was a great time and a great experience to learn about football. But what I was going to tell you is every day, most days at practice, I stood next to Paul Brown. And I just, and I didn't realize it as much at the time. Right. But I, I'm sitting next to Paul, I'm standing next to Paul Brown and and day after day, he would just tell me things. He'd just tell me, here's why this is happening, here's why that's happening. He, he didn't talk a lot, but he talked. And um, so when I left to move to New York in 1985, uh, one of the uh, front office guys with the team gave me a cassette tape. And it was a tape of Paul Brown's camp opening speech to the Bengals when he coached. And it's 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 an incredible it's an incredible historical document because in those days he's telling the players everything. Now look at night. Here's what I want you to do. And when you go into the into the cafeteria, here's how I want you to eat. Here's you know. And it's just it's like he tells them everything about how he's going to kind of control their lives for the next X number of months. Yeah. And it's one of the most interesting things I've ever heard. And I, you I have would to love hear to it. hear that. You've I got would to hear love it. To. I'm a huge Paul Brown fan. Are you and, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and encouraged by Bill. And when I, yeah. you know, research and, and have read different books, and then I'll go back and talk to Bill about it. And um, what's amazing is, I'm not sure if an article came out or media or something, but I was approached then by uh, an alumni of RPI from like 49 um, who sent me a letter who had played maybe a year or two at Ohio State 
for Paul Brown. And he started telling me the story about, you know, we talk about playbooks and notebooks. And, and I remember reading about how Paul Brown made them all, basically handed him an empty uh, notebook and made them draw and create their own playbooks. And he and this gentleman that got a hold of me uh, was, is you know, backing this up. He's like, I still have my notebook. I still have it. And I'm like, oh, I have to see this. Please, you know, let me, you know, get a hold of this thing. So uh, I would love to get, that would be Yeah, you got to, you have to, you, you got to, you got to hear this. Um, the one other thing I would say that I always find interesting, this is just maybe six or eight years ago, Greg Roman, you know, the longtime NFL assistant coach came up to me and we were just talking. He was with the 49ers at the time. And he reminded me that his dad, or his uncle rather, wrote uh, a biography of Paul Brown. And I knew this guy, Jack Clary, and he was in camp all the time with Paul Brown. And he said, uh, Roman said, the year that you covered the team, I was a ball boy. No way. At training That's camp great. in Wilmington yeah, College. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah, that'll age you in a hurry. Um <laughs> Okay, so we, we we're gonna we're gonna move on, and I'm gonna ask you the one thing that really stands out from the Super Bowl this year to me is how hard the Philadelphia Eagles worked to kind of overcome what they knew the Patriots did so well, which is identify formations, tendencies, uh, and everything in the plays. And in, in fact, Frank Reich. Uh, the offensive coordinator then of the Eagles told me, he admitted to me that if it was another team, they probably would not have gone to the lengths that they went to try to disguise what they were doing and to try to show you nothing that you've ever seen before. Which is, you know, kind of, I, I think it's got to be sort of, boy, that's a, that's a great honor, but Jesus, I mean, why, yeah. why not? Yeah. Don't tell me that, don't tell me that now. But okay, so the last the the touchdown pass to Zacherts that won the game for them uh it's third and seven uh you know with 235 left in the game and there's a mic on you or um a microphone over your head and at the time you said we got a double 86 we got a double 86 so on that play they send the back into motion Corey Clement and 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 Duran Harmon goes with with him, uh, with Clement. So now singled is Zach Ertz, the tight end, on Devin McCourty. And so I wondered, as I think probably a lot of people do to watch that, what the disconnect was and why didn't you actually double Zach Ertz on that play? Sure. Um, that's funny. I haven't heard any of the audio from the game because – trying to forget trying as quick forget as possible that. you know well it's a very it's a, clear thing he says we got a double 86 yeah okay yeah uh i mean obviously great player situational football he's going to be the guy uh there was a couple plays in in those drives where you know he was the featured guy and we were trying to get two guys on him um i would say you know some situational things that came up in that game too at, at that point where um with the time and the clock running and trying to you know use the timeouts and then the two minute situation and where the game was uh, certain formations were going to dictate some things that um, you know we we couldn't get to that situation and unfortunately got caught in a single coverage. But we also were trying to get the ball out as fast as we could and force a play. So um, let me ask you this question: Should anybody in your front seven ha- have have dropped back into coverage on that play or? And and when you see that play happening, it's probably a little bit too late to tell anybody on the field exactly sure. what to do. Yeah, you know, and then, I mean, and the bottom line is, I mean, you know, I, I have to and will always give full credit to Philly. I mean, they did a great job, you yeah. know, and they made a great play. And, um, you know, and, uh, and then on the other side of it, I, you know, will always put it on my side. I got to do a better job of in those situations uh, of helping everybody and making sure we understand what it is. And so. Um, but if you had to do, if you had to do that over again, <clears throat> what do you think you would have done? I mean, I hopefully would have kept them out of the end zone entirely, maybe a strip sack and scooped and scored the other end that would have been ideally would have been a great play but would you but does Duran does Duran Harmon have to take the Uh, motion man on that you know what I mean I'm not going to get into specifics of that particular situation but obviously yeah I would have tried to give as much help as I could and stop him yeah um when you look back on that game does it strike you that 
Philadelphia was particularly imaginative and that maybe that's due to your reputation, Bill's reputation, Ernie Adams, you're, you know, who's such a good student sure. and tells you so much about what to expect? I, I would say that, um, you know, in this situation during the game, probably not. You know, I think you are going into a game like that where there is two weeks to prepare and you know teams are going to really um, do as much as they can. Maybe that, you know, a couple things that you haven't seen before to try to take advantage in those situations. So uh, you're certainly aware of that. You're ready for those situations to come up. And, uh, you know, you want to make sure you're prepared for all of it as much as you can. You know, I think, again, with that game and um, – you know, I don't like to talk about it too much, the game in general, but um, I just, the way that our guys, and especially the defense, my guys that I coached, prepare, practiced, uh, you know, really tried to do everything they could on the field, um, you know, I'll, I just, I appreciated them so much. You know, I appreciate all those guys. I love love them all and, and how hard they worked. And, um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm fortunate with games like that. And I had another one, uh, you know, right here in this city, which still haunts me to this day, you know. Um, I'm sure at some point in my life I'm going to look back and go, gosh, I can't believe I went to that many, you know, had that many opportunities. You know, it's probably yeah. a great thing. But, you know, I just always will um, be in a situation where I'm like, I wish I did more to help those guys because I really wanted I wanted them to be champions. I wanted but them at the to end succeed. Of the day, at the end of the day, Matt, you're talking, the other game you're talking about is the Super Bowl yeah. in Indianapolis against yep. the Giants. Giants, but, the second one, yeah. But let's, let's, let's be honest. I mean, I not that. I remember talking to Eli Manning after that game, and I said, you can play football for 50 years. You'll never make a throw like that throw you made to Mario Manningham down the left <clears> sidelines. <throat> and honestly, you can nit, you can nitpick and um, shoot uh, your safety who came over a little yeah, bit Pat, late on that. Yeah, was Pat Chung. Yeah, Pat Chung. Yeah. I, I asked him about it at the Super Bowl, and he said, you know, sometimes you got to give credit to the Absolutely. guy yeah. to, to they, make an incredible they, pass. But th you know, what happens is everybody pinpoints those type of plays. Yeah. I'm looking at the other plays. Right. I know there's going to be those great plays. There's right. going to be those unbelievable situations where guys, you know, those are great players. Those are great teams. When you get to that last game, you're talking about two phenomenal teams. Yeah. I'm looking at the play that maybe happened three plays before. Right. I'm looking at the play that maybe happened in the first half. I'm looking at that other play going – man, if I had just done a better job for everybody here, we wouldn't even had that situation to put those guys in. So right. that's just kind of how it works. You know, I just, you know, it's it's always going to be on me. I'm, our, our guys, the way they prepare and practice, um, you know, with those teams, uh, I have nothing but the utmost respect for respect and love for those guys. So yeah. uh, it was good. But, you know, the good part about it is um, we move forward and now obviously I have this great opportunity to try to, you know, build as much as we can with Detroit. I want to ask you two things about the Lions. So it strikes me that you're a really good fit for Detroit as a city, as an area, and Detroit's ethos. You know, and there's a lot of stories during this process that you really wanted to coach the Giants, that that was your, that was your first choice. But I think at the end of the day, what ends up happening with these jobs is that if you were to look at places – you know, and I'm not saying you wouldn't have done a great job with the Giants, but I am saying that to me, I think Detroit for you as a person is just a really good fit. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a situation where um, I don't know if you can say as soon as you walked into it, you feel like it's home, but you feel like it's home, you know, right away. It's definitely a uh, blue collar, grinded out kind of area. That's how I grew up. You know, that's all I know. You know, my reset button, if anything, is not going the way it should be is just put my head down and grind and try to figure it out and work harder than everybody else. And um, that's the feel you get. You get, obviously you have a, a city, you know, but with the small town feel and um, the people that are just so excited. I, I tell you, I couldn't have be around uh, everybody I see that's just, you know, oh, we're so excited and, um, and I appreciate that to such a high level. And, and then internally, I'm like, oh, God, we got it. I got to make sure I get this right. We got it. You know, it just it drives me even now when I see somebody from Detroit. I just instantly feel that loyalty to I have to do everything possible I can to try to hopefully win, you know, a game. I don't know, you know, at this point, but just because there's so many people that are excited and I don't want to let them down. Yeah. It's amazing to, to know the Detroit Lions history, which is so glorious, but it hasn't been glorious for almost a half century so is there any part of that that you pay attention to at all this really long drought 
between being a championship team and today? I mean, I don't look at that negative part about it. I love the history, the great part of it. You know, and like you said, there is such a wonderful history with the organization. And what's amazing is, you know, my background of a lot of it, too, comes from Coach Belichick and through his dad, you know, and, and some of the old films that he was able to get a hold of from Detroit. And we're sitting there watching 8mm, you know, of his dad and, the, and those great teams, which is awesome. Um, I don't look at those other other things. You know, I, all I'm trying to focus on is what I can do moving forward and hopefully, like I said, try to do the best I can to, you know, um, you know, not let anybody down in those situations. If, if I'm watching the Detroit Lions this November. Hopefully you are, yes. What what are what's the kind of what's the style of football on both sides of the ball that I'm gonna be watching? Yeah, I mean I'm, my biggest thing that hopefully we'll come across on tape and we gotta make sure we get this done is that, you know, we're playing a, a smart, tough, fundamentally sound, you know, game of football on all three phases, you know, and uh, doing the things that, you know, uh, all of that involves and that really hopefully will be our starting point hopefully we can use that as a staple then to build on um, because I think the foundation and your fundamentals and how you play uh, from the ground up will really be our starting point and then you expand from there I think if you try to start with something different than that then you have no base to stand on and eventually when things become difficult and hard which it does in this league it is a fine line I don't care what team you're playing uh, but when it gets to those tough situations if you don't have that that base to go back to, you know, that fundamentals to build on, uh, you really don't have a lot. Yeah. Matt, listen, I really want to wish you well, and uh, great to see you with a head coaching uh, pencil behind your ear <laughs> now. It looks exactly the same as the defensive coordinating pencil yeah, behind yeah, your ear. Yeah, probably, this is probably, you know, if somebody asked me, they're like, do you lose those? And I'm like, actually, I don't. So probably, <laughs> this is, you know, until they just go all the way down too far where I can't find them anymore. It's, it's been in there for a while. Matt, all the best to you. Best of luck. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. This is the MMQB Podcast. Support for MMQB with Peter King comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They understand that home plays a big role in your life and family. That's why they created Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It is really, really convenient. Our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. And in addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com king. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Number 3030. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson. It's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now my conversation with the University of Wyoming's rising star quarterback, Josh Allen. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, joined by Wyoming quarterback Josh Allen. And Josh, we're at the scouting combine, and it's a little bit crazy you're in the gatorade booth at the scouting combine and you are uh 
we're near the uh, the the bench press area where you've got 500 people screaming for people to lift weight. Mm. So, I mean, you're a guy. You're from Fireball, California. That's right. And you played it in college in Wyoming. So what has the last few days been like for you to try to experience this weird, weird world? Well, honestly, it's a dream come true. Um, something I've always wanted to do as a kid is coming to the NFL scouting combine and kind of show off my talent. Did you watch the, the, the combine when oh, you were a kid? Oh, every year. Absolutely. This is, you know, um, the football you get after the Super Bowl. So this kind of keeps football alive for, for the next month. And obviously you got the draft here. Um, you know, it's dwindling down in days. So, um, you know, I'm super excited to be in the position I am. I've been blessed, you know, with a great support group. My family's super excited for me, and they've pushed me along the way. So I couldn't be happier, to be honest. It looks like this really is not overwhelming you at all. But it must be really strange, this environment, you know, not having been in it before. So what was it like for you to come in here and try to put your best foot forward? You know, this is what I've always wanted to do, and that's play football at the national, um, you know, na- the national professional level, whatever you want to call it. And now I've got the chance to do it. And, you know, I'm taking it, you know, with a grain of salt because it could be over as fast as it starts. Um, I'm having fun while I'm doing it. I understand that there's going to be a lot of hard work that goes into it. The draft process is only the beginning of your NFL career. Uh, you know, but at the same time, it's a lot of fun being around, you know, the likes of Sam Darnold's and, uh, other guys within this draft class and um, you know being able to experience things like coming into the Gatorade booth and playing beat the blitz and seeing Peyton Manning on screen and uh, just being able to you know experience all this down here in Indianapolis it's just been a surreal uh, type of deal. You grew up a lot different from a lot of quarterbacks from a lot of people here at the Combine anyway you grew up on a family farm in California mm-hmm. so how much did you actually work on the farm? What did you guys raise as a farming family? Yeah, so I worked on, on the farm in summers. We only did row crops, so cotton, cantaloupe, and wheat. Um, you know, whether it was moving irrigation pipe with my brother, we were walking along, um, you know, side of trailer, picking it up, putting it down, picking it up, putting it down, all the way down the rows. So, uh, you know, there was a good time to kind of show or at least teach a good work ethic, uh, weed and cotton in the co- or weed and wheat. Weed and weeds in the cotton field, um, driving discs and tractors, and you know we didn't do it to the T that my dad did it in high school. He would go before before class and do it after class. He understood that took a toll on on him. Uh, he really wanted to be to kind of push us to be athletes. Um, so that's what we did instead of work on the farm. It, our sports were our way out. So we did everything growing up. Uh, soccer, baseball, basketball, football, karate, gymnastics. We swam. I mean, we did it all. So we were staying competitive year-round. And how did you pick football? What happened? I, that's just the only thing I've ever truly loved um, as a sport. It goes back to you know as long as I can remember. You know, I slept at the football, and um, you know it's just something that's always been near and dear to my heart. And I'm gonna try to play this game for as long as I can. What what team did you love as a kid? So we were two and a half hours away from the Bay Area. So I was a big 49er fan. Um, you know, the likes of Jeff Garcia and Tim Rattay and Ken Dorsey. And, uh, you know, it, it was a cool time to kind of watch Terrell Owens play there. And uh, there was a good good run um, before I was born. You know, my dad was able to witness that with Steve Young and Joe Montana. So they've had some really good quarterbacks there. Uh, and that's what I wanted to be was a quarterback. Deep down inside, who do you hope calls your name on draft day? You know, it doesn't matter. Um, whether it's first, 100th, or undrafted, you know, whatever team I end up on, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power to become the best player I can be and put, help put the team in the best situation to win games. A few years ago, uh, Mike Zimmer, the head coach of the Vikings, met with Johnny Manziel. They had dinner, and Zimmer basically said to Manziel, listen, I got to know. Come on, you got to tell me. Are you going to be the guy for our team? And, and he wanted Johnny Manziel to convince him basically that if we pick you you're going to be great and everything so if a team asks you what would you say if they say hey listen should we really put our future in your hands yeah I mean I would just reply with listen I'm going to give you everything that I have um, you know I'm an extremely hard worker and this is the only thing I want to do is win football games 
and you know if you're if I'm fortunate enough to play for your team, um, I'm going to do everything in my will to help this team win football games. Last thing, you've answered this question 16,000 times this week, but your college completion percentage, percentage 56%. was 56%. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have tried to make, not excuses, but have tried to think of reasons about why that was. Tell me why that was, in your opinion. You know, uh, I think going back and watching film, we kind of dwindled it down. To why I was missing, um, large in part due to my feet. You know, a lot of overstrides, um, a lot of you know, too open of a hip, too close of a hip. So that's what we've been working on the past month and a half. With Jordan, you've Palmer. been working with Jordan Palmer, quarterback yes, coach, yeah. Mm. So, and I mean, what has he done with you? And, you know, we're just trying to find the right base, uh, trying to keep a short front stride, allowing everything to consistently sequence through. Uh, so trying to get as in the most uncomfortable position as possible get back to the right base and make a good throw. So um, I definitely feel like I've, I've improved um, extremely fast with him working with me, um, throwing with the likes of Sam Darnold and Kyle Allen. We're competing every day. Uh, we're having fun with it too, so it's, it's been awesome. Josh Allen live from the Gatorade booth at the Scouting Combine in Indianapolis. It's a pleasure meeting you. Pleasure to meet you too. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. We all know the value of a good night's sleep. I'm out on the road all the time, so believe me, nothing makes me happier than being back home for a good night's sleep thanks to Mattress Firm. They're going to make your wallet happy too. The basis for my argument is simple. Your bed budget can go further when you're shopping at America's neighborhood mattress store. It's like having a touchdown and getting the game ball. So Mattress Firm, they're, they're like the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they're more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed, from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They've got you figuratively and literally covered up, just like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com podcast to see what deals are happening soon and as soon as you finish this show. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee, so you'll know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch, a knockout, if you will. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com podcast to get the play-by-play -play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. Now my conversation with Mary Kay Cabot, the longtime beat writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, covering the Cleveland Browns. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, joined by Mary Kay Cabot, the longtime Cleveland Browns beat writer for the Plain Dealer in Cleveland. And Mary Kay, you've covered the Cleveland Browns as a beat now for about 28 years. Yep. And... You started in Bill Belichick's first year. We're here at the Scouting Combine, by the way, which, and I've always thought with Cleveland that around October 1st every year, people start to stop looking forward to the games and they start looking forward to the draft. So what is this time of year like for you? In some ways, is this time of year a little bit more important than when they play games? Oh, absolutely. Right now, I mean, this is like the Super Bowl. We are wandering around here. The Browns beat writers like, you know, like the Browns are playing in the Super Bowl. And that's, I mean, I've got fans shouting at me here as I'm trying to write. I mean, this is like game time for what, Cleveland. They're, they're, what are they shouting? Who, who to pick? Yeah, go Browns, who to pick, you name it. I mean, even here, you know, at the NFL Combine, you know, I, you know they are out in full force. So, uh, you know, hope always springs eternal in Brownstown, and, uh, you know, the, those fans just keep hanging in there. So, Mary Kay, you started covering this team in Bill Belichick's first year. Yep. So, what was covering Bill Belichick before he was Bill Belichick really like? It was challenging. I was the first, you know, it was my first time on the beat. So, his first year as a head coach was my first year on the Browns beat. So, I mean, what a baptism by fire. Here you are. Welcome to the NFL, right? So here I am trying to uh, grapple, 
you know, with the whole Bill Belichick experience uh, my first time up. So, you know, I mean, if you can survive the Bill Belichick years on an NFL beat, you know, it's pretty much smooth sailing since then. And there's probably been about 100 coaches since then, uh, <laughs> but no one quite as challenging as Bill Belichick. So I've got, you know, plenty of stories and, and memories and funny times from those years because as beat writers, we all bonded together, uh, you know, from, you know, mutually all of us, you know, sort of being emotionally abused by Bill Belichick. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever see him now and say hello to him at any of these at Super Bowls or anything like that? You know, I try to, you know, I try to say hi, you know, and that's basically about it. You know, if yeah. I get a high out of him, uh, you know, then, you know, that's a good day. But, yeah. uh, you know, for the most part, I really haven't had much contact with him since those years. And it's just funny because, um, you know, people would probably not believe this but I mean he would call me on the phone and yell at me if he didn't like something you know sometimes at seven o'clock in the morning and we'd be on the phone yelling for an hour and I remember one time you know we had um Tony Grossi your dear friend Tony Grossi yep. and Ed Meyer were on the beat back then and um and Bill used to for whatever reason you know those guys were called like gloom and doom I think yeah and um for whatever reason you know Bill you know didn't really try, you know, to go after them as hard as he would. You know, he was hard on me. Let's put it that way. He was hard on me. He'd call me. He'd yell at me. Um, and so one time I actually yelled at him on the phone and I said, if you don't have the, the bees to talk like this to Ed and Tony, then don't talk like this to me. And I slammed the phone down on wow. him. So we had, we had our moments. We fought, you know, but, but I, we also got along pretty well. I mean, he invited me to... Um, he was very close with Casey Coleman, yeah. uh, the former radio voice of the Browns, and he invited uh, Casey Coleman and I to go on a draft visit with with him. So I wow. got to go on, you know, the little plane, uh, you know, and, and go on, on the private plane and go on a draft visit. I think he really tried in the beginning, uh, you know, to cooperate, you know, with the media and, you know, to try to sort of let me into his inner world a little bit and see him. And I think his, his then-wife, Debbie, really wanted people to see yeah. A different side of him than, you know, sort of the hefty bag guy that we saw, you know, up at the podium. Yeah. How surprised are you that Bill Belichick is now on the Mount Rushmore of NFL coaches in the history of pro football? You know, it is pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, to grasp what he has accomplished. But you could see the signs of greatness when he was in Cleveland. You could see that he was onto something. And I will tell you what, you know this by now, the staff that he assembled in Cleveland, and I see these guys all over the place all the time. I mean, he assembled just an actually almost magical staff. Yeah. It was incredible. We didn't know it at the time, but as the years went by, you would just start to, you know, be at the, you know, at, at the Super Bowl or at the Senior Bowl and, you know, oh, there's, you know, GM, you know, Tom Dimitrov. I mean, everywhere you look, there's Ozzie Newsome. Uh, well, you, you know, know what the amazing thing is, Mary Kay, when you think about it? Think about when the Cleveland Browns won a playoff game with Bill Belichick. Yep. Bill Belichick's the head coach. Nick Saban is the defensive coordinator, yes. and they beat Bill Parcells' team. Yes. I mean, that to me is rather amazing yes. when you think about it, that that's where they were at that time. And I, I, I'm a little bit stunned that almost by, um, almost by chance that at some point in the last, you know, say eight years, yeah. they just they've not gotten it right like ever when you sort of look at it what do you attribute that to you know what what i attribute that to it's two owners that really struggled to assemble good football front offices and coaching staffs that worked well together and that could be successful and they blow it up and then they blow it up again and then they blow it up again when they tell you they're not going to blow it up. And it's basically, that's been the name of the game. I mean, See, I'm one of the few people who think that they absolutely should not have fired Hugh Jackson this year. You mean and Sashi? No, 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 no. Oh, but I mean, oh. I mean, I, everybody was saying, okay, they go oh, yeah. one in thirty-one. No, no, you're right, you're right. you got to fire. You got to fire Hugh Jackson. Okay. And 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 I said, no, don't. That just makes right the problem that exacerbates the problem. Right. And I'm not even. I have no idea whether Hugh Jackson's going to be a great coach or not. Right. 
the only thing I, I know about this now, at least in my opinion, is that, you know, I, I know Joe Thomas some. And Joe Thomas is convinced that this guy is going to be a good coach and that the Browns are better off with him. And I kind of bought into that. Right. I kind of bought into that. But I also think that you just can't, no matter how bad the team is, unless the coach has lost the locker room, you can't keep changing coaches. You can't keep changing coaches. You've got to try uh, to stick with something. And, you know, I mean, I think I, I'm with you. I think he deserved another chance uh, to try to give this a go under – not under the duress that he had been under the last two years. Who tries to put together a front office of decision makers that have no talent evaluating experience in the NFL? Your your guy who has final say over the ro- all roster decisions does not know how to sit down and break down film. I mean, you, you can't do it like that. Yeah. You can't do it like that. There was a way to do it. Uh, you know, you could have put Sashi as president and brought in a, you know, a good GM, a John type Dorsey or an Elliot Wolf type of guy with him. But the way they tried to do it, it, it's it's not being done anywhere in the NFL because it can't work like that. So you have to give Hugh Jackson a chance with good football people around him, with good football players around him. I mean, he went into last year with three quarterbacks who had never won an NFL football game as a starter. Two of them had never started a game. And the one that had was Cody Kessler, who had gone 0-8. So when Deshaun Kaiser struggled, there was nowhere to turn to. He tried. He went to Kevin Hogan. And he threw three interceptions in the first half of a game. So, you know, it, it, it just was not the way to go. And when I look back over the last couple of years, with the amount of resources and draft capital that the Browns had, fan, the fans deserved better. You yeah. don't have to tear down a team in today's NFL. You don't have to do it with Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And Mary Kay, I just wonder, has the the losing obviously gets to fans. Does the losing get to you? You know what? Oddly enough, no. And I don't know why. I get that question a lot. But it doesn't get to me. And I think it's because, as you know and most people know, the Browns are always in the news. There's yeah. always something to write about. I mean, we got a lot of mileage out of the Johnny Manziel years, yeah. uh, but there's always something going on. There's always change. Uh, it's always new. It's always different. I don't have time to stop and think about, geez, I've probably only covered two winning seasons <laughs> in the last <laughs> 28 or whatever. Um, because, you know, I'm always covering a coaching search, or now here we are at the NFL Combine covering the number one and number four overall picks. I mean, that's a big, big deal, right? Yeah. Last year, number one pick. You know, I mean, that was a huge deal. So every time you turn around, uh, there are tons of big stories regarding the Cleveland Browns, and it it almost never gets old, even though you would think that it would. Yeah. Um, What was the the craziest coach firing, the craziest coaching change? I'll, I'll nominate my choice. Rob Chudzinski getting fired when, you know, the news spreading when they're on the bus going yes. from Pittsburgh to Cleveland after the last game of the year. But I don't want to pre, I don't want to, to, to prejudice you. What's the weirdest coaching firing you've seen? Well, you know what? That was it. That was it because he had only coached for one year and he was so blindsided by that. I mean, he had no idea. He had no idea that that was happening. Uh, So I would have to say that. I mean, really, most people don't fire your coach after one season. But again, this was just the uh, tumultuous period that has gone on under Jimmy Haslam. And, you know, hopefully he's gotten it right now. I mean, every time I, you know, walk around somewhere, I have good football people coming up to me and saying they have really filled that building with good men, good football people who know the game and can evaluate talent. So... Here's hoping for Browns fans, for everybody in Cleveland, uh, that Jimmy's getting it right this time. But I still think that there are problems. Uh, I still think there are some issues going on. What uh, What was that night like for you? Do you Do you remember much about that night with Chudzinski? Oh yeah, I, I do because you know we started hearing. Uh, I think right before the game that you know that he was getting fired, and he's hearing it the same time we were hearing it, and you know. Every time, it's, every time they play in Pittsburgh in the season finale, it's like, okay, another coach is going to get fired. You know, it's almost a, a rite of passage. Um, but, yeah, I do remember uh, just uh, the whole afternoon was all about him getting fired. It was nothing about the game because we knew about it right before the game. So the game went by the wayside. Uh, you know, I'm on the phone with 
you know, agents and, you know, people trying to get a hold of Chud. You know, it, it was absolutely bizarre um, and, you know, and stressful because, you know, trying to find out if this is actually true. And, you know, you, de- you try to develop relationships with people, too. And I actually really liked Rob Chudzinski as a coach and as a person. And his heart and soul was in that job. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen a coach more devastated by getting fired wow. than he was from that job. It crushed him. It crushed his wife. It was heartbreaking for, for all wow. of them. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. Our thanks to Mary Kay Cabot. And I'm sorry to end so abruptly. There's a lot of noise in the background right around that time. And so I just ended it there. And I hope you enjoyed the uh, the thoughts from Mary Kay Cabot. So thanks to my guests, Matt Patricia, Josh Allen, and Mary Kay Cabot. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Roger Goodell, Tom Brady, and Bruce Arians. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King, on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning, 7 Eastern, on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Mattress Firm and Quicken Loans. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.